You are listening to the Horizons Church Podcast. Hello, greetings, and salutations to you, Mr. Ethan Michael Bolton. I don't, you know, I don't like that. But I'm here anyway. (laughs) This is the second time we've tried to record this opening because the last one, man... (laughs) I really just picture what happened, but then the exact opposite of that. That's the story of this we're, uh, introduction. We're not slowing down. No, we're not, because we're talking about finding Forrester. What? Another uh, follow up yeah. about a movie? Yeah, Thank yeah, you. yeah. <laughs> Say psych right now. Don't someone a listener. Let's see. The funny thing is, <laughs> someone's like, please no. I, like, Say I know right. I clicked on that, but please be anything <laughs> other than. Another movie. Uh, listen, you're in the wrong series it's for it. that. It's Church at the Movies right now. It's the whole series. So we got to extrapolate. Mean, if you're listening to this, we, we still got four to go. We have four to go. Mm. And then we resume the creative commentary, yeah, of course. Yeah, so, boy, I hope you like this. <laughs> it would mean a lot, because I like it. But with other great content in between, of course. Yeah. You know, as we do around here. But no, we are actually doing a Finding Forrester yeah. follow-up. Pastor Steve preached the book of, not the entire book of Exodus. The whole <laughs> book of Exodus. Could you imagine that? The entire book in one yeah. one sermon? Well, I just call that the Prince of Egypt animated movie. <laughs> <laughs> and I just assume everything else is a footnote. Deliver us. <laughs> just a little. Those are the primary events and that's it. <laughs> no, as I was saying, Pastor Steve preached through parts of the life of Moses and used that as an interpretive grid mm. for the movie Finding Forrester, Whoa. starring it's Sean like playing Battleship. Star- what? <laughs> You like the interpretive grid? Never mind. I I see what you're saying now because yeah. the game Battleship, mm-hmm. the classic, mm-hmm. it has a grid. Yeah, and you have to plot out, you know, your opponent's location based on. So yes, we'll we'll carry on. Yeah, thank you. Everyone can go home and play a game of Battleship now on their phones. You can do that now. Well, oh yeah, Game Pigeon hmm. for all you Game Pigeon users out there. But anyway. <laughs> At the beginning of the movie Finding Forrester, the title character, who is, you guessed it, Forrester, (laughs) he's something of a recluse, which, by the way, I mean, is it recluse, recluse, recluse? I always struggle with that word. Okay, here's the thing, right? I would say recluse if you're a human, Uh, and recluse if you're an eight-legged demon from the pits of hell. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? Interesting. I don't say brown recluse, because that sounds like he's a pal. You know, oh, recluse. recluse is a person. Recluse is this a spider. Is a brown sp- Okay, so yeah. recluse. So he is a recluse, point being. Forrester is a recluse. He watches the world from the seclusion of his apartment with a pair of binoculars. Not creepy at all. Zero, it's like, Zero percent creepy. It's just like a kinder disturbia. Yes. Wow, what another throwback. Yeah. He's watching the world through a pair of binoculars. He's distant. He's above the real world in a sort of semi-interested, but I'm not going to get involved way. Yeah. You know, like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, I'm watch i want to see what's going on but am i going down there not a chance heck no no i'm not going down there i ain't getting down into that so he's pretty unapproachable you know of course as one is literally quite literally and uh the other primary character in the story jamal has to break in to forrester's apartment actually encounter him quote unquote I don't really like that word, but I couldn't think of anything more fitting, you know, meet him, see him. Because it's but not it's, exactly like a traditional No, I mean, he, you're breaking into the man's apartment, yeah. and then, you know, when he comes out, you know, he's like, ah, I'm scared, he runs away, leaves his backpack. Like, yeah. it's not a meeting, it's not a, uh, not a friendly to-do. I don't think you're going to like this more, but like a, I think a, like a narrative or f- a filmic term would be a meet-cute. A meet-cute? 
Yeah. Although it's more, I think, maybe even exclusively applied when two characters who are destined ones. Like, it's sort of like, it would be like the first time that Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone meet. Oh, in they're the destined, La La Land. Yeah, like they're destined to have a future, but that first meeting before it actually becomes significant, when they're passing each other on the highway, that would be, I guess you you could consider it a meet-cute. I've never heard that term before, yeah, It's actually. a little bit odd, but... Yeah. So that's what they have. I mean, that's, that's yeah. a technical I don't know if I would term. apply to this, but yeah, it's okay. sort of ish. That's ish. An encounter of some kind yeah. that will intersect their destinies exactly. forever. <laughs> so we get this picture of Forrester as the recluse, you know, the distant, weird uninvolved, semi-interested man. And what I wanted to kind of draw out and talk about in this episode that Steve didn't really get to address in his message was I think that the picture we get of Forrester at the beginning of this movie actually provides us with a fairly common picture of God Mm. in the modern mind, especially. Uh, We sometimes see God as Someone who, he lives in some kind of lofty tower, you know, far above the Mm. real world. He only has a sort of feigned interest in what's going on down here. He's watching distantly, but he's not going to involve himself. Mm. And it would take a daring act of defiance to really get his attention. I think that's what we tend to think of him, or we are in danger of thinking about God. I also think it's weird to bring this up now of all times because it's something to to highlight that from my own life that I think I can very easily fall into is like that God doesn't really care if I'm checking off these boxes, like the normal grind. It's affecting no change. It's not moving the needle. And there's no, well, there's no immediate metric of God patting you on the back. Right. And saying you're doing the right thing. Exactly. There's nothing like that. And it could be extremely easy to think like, how meaningful is it? Does it matter? Praying for a situation, maybe a loved one or something nothing happens. Like, what am I doing? Yeah. Inversely, like you mentioned, I think if you're going to elicit any kind of response at all, it's just wrath. Wrath is always somehow on the table. Yeah. Like, God must be very angry with me and ready to smite me at a moment's notice. (laughs) Exactly. And it's like, if you did anything wrong, right, you're just holding your breath because any second, the hammer's going to fall. Yeah. Like, this will be the moment I actually get a response from God. And like, in that kind of like relationship that's perceived anyway, it almost seems to validate or justify the fact that he doesn't care at any other time because I screw up all the time. Of course. Of course he wouldn't care. Yeah. But to actually say that out loud and hear myself say it, He's wildly messed up. Well, yeah, and especially when you come to the scriptures and you meet God as he's revealed himself. Mm -hmm. I think that's where we get the disconnect is we become untethered and unanchored from the ways God has actually revealed himself. So like you take, for instance, and I do think, you know, without giving too much credit to Satan and the uh, spiritual (laughs) forces of darkness at work in our lives, but I do think that's one of their best tactics is to Mm -hmm. get us to think, well, all you do is screw up and sin. And therefore, when you actually do something good, God is kind of like, oh, here's my surprised face. (laughs) You know, like that classic look. Uh, it's always like this time you almost lived up to the normal standard. Yeah. And, try. Yeah. And of course, since you're always sitting and screwing up, I, I'll let you know that, of course. Right. But the picture you get in the scriptures of God is that even to take the whole nation of Israel as an example in the Old Testament, because that's, I think, especially we want to read the Old Testament and say God was very wrathful in the Old Testament. Right. That actually what's more shocking to me especially as I've gotten older and I read through entire portions of the Old Testament and read through the history of Israel, is how merciful and compassionate he was to them. Mm -hmm. In fact, when Moses asks God to reveal himself, 
the way God chooses to reveal himself is he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love from generation to generation. Like when he chooses to reveal himself, the primary method is love, Mm. which does not negate or take away the fact that there is anger and wrath over sin and wrongdoing. But his love, I heard someone say once, love is the primary engine that God is running off of. It's not wrath, it's love. And so you take, say, this picture, you know, the Forrester picture of God, this distant deity who's up in some lofty place. Some cosmic observatory. Yeah, cosmic observatory. I like that. Yeah. I'm going to steal that at some point and use Do that it. in a sermon probably. <laughs> <laughs> but kind of watching the world through binoculars, not really involved, doesn't really care, except for when you screw up and exactly. then he's going to let you know. Yeah. Well, when we read the scriptures, the picture we get, and if we can find it in our hearts to believe it, is that God is deeply personal, he is near, and he has a vested interest in the world that he's created. So... In one sense, let's take this from a couple angles. Yes, God is entirely different from us. In one sense, yes, God is very far removed from us, Mm -hmm. but he's also relational and intimate with us. So you take passages like 1 John 3, 1, which says, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. That's relational, obviously, terminology. And not that, you know, I have these children who keep screwing up and, you know, I got to really whack them into shape. It says what kind of love he's given to us. It's also very, it's adoptive, which is something that requires choice. It does. You have to go out seeking and finding children that need to be adopted. You also have in Psalm 22, 9 and 10, this is one of my favorite passages in all scripture. The psalmist writes, yet you, God, are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb, you have been my God. I don't know that you get much more intimate than the fact that when you were in the womb, God knew you and loved you. I mean, there's a whole set of time. (laughs) I'm thinking, you know, when Morgan was pregnant with Abby, I mean, there's a whole set of time. We didn't even know Abby existed, you know, and we had no idea what she was going to be like. We didn't know she was going to be a girl, like all these things. But God knows all of that. Like he knows us in the most secret places and he still loves us. In fact, there's this little line from Shane and Shane. They made an album of the Psalms and uh, they said, oh Lord, you know the hearts of man and still you let them live. Like the fact that, oh, he knows all that and he still loves us at our darkest. Right. Like, he's very relationally involved if we believe the scriptures and if we take the scriptures at their word. And so you also have in another sense that God is far above us, right? But he's also near us. So there's this kind of weird paradoxical element to God's relationship in that way. And you see that pretty clearly demonstrated in a passage like Isaiah 57, 15, which says, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. So now that's about as far away from us here on earth as you can get. The high and holy one who inhabits eternity. I don't even really fully know what that means. Basically, I mean, it's like the antithesis of human existence. Like in every almost, I think, possible category. Yeah. So he's entirely different from us. But then (laughs) we have that. And then this is what he says. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So at the same time, he says, oh yeah, I inhabit eternity in the high and holy and lofty 
lofty place. I also dwell with the humble and the lowly of spirit and the contrite of heart, which is, again, that's that's very relational and very spatially yeah. near terminology. Like he takes that out of this kind of ethereal eternity realm that mm. I don't think any human mind, well, Paul said it, no human <laughs> mind has fully understood that or grasped that. And he, he takes himself out of that and says, I also dwell with the one who is lowly. And that's a very like vulnerable place. Yes. To cohabitate. Yes. Which is also kind of interesting you mentioned that because there's one passage in all of the New Testament where Jesus reveals his heart, where he actually says, this is what my heart is like. And when he does that, what he says is, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for... Now, I may be not getting this exactly right, but if I'm not mistaken, what he says is, for I am a gentle and lowly in heart. Oh, and oh, that's unique. You just get this very unique picture of God in Jesus. That, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, he really is the kind of God who he's not just saying empty words. And he says, I dwell with the lowly and the contrite in spirit. Like Jesus came and dirtied his feet yeah. and touched lepers. And it's not just sentiment. Yeah. And then when he sees people who are harried and overwhelmed and burdened, people like you and me and everyone, mm-hmm. you know, we're all burdened in our own way and we all feel like. Like we're not getting it. And we all feel like even on our best days, we're not everything we're cracked up to be. Yeah. yeah. And I do think in the end, many of us are trying the best we can with what we have. Mm-hmm. And we still feel like it's not enough. And what Jesus says to us is, you know, come to me. Like I'm gentle and lowly in heart, which makes him very approachable to me yeah. as opposed to, oh yeah, he's up there in the <laughs> cosmic observatory. And man, I really hope he isn't angry at me for screwing up today, which I think brings us back kind of full circle here to say, and also to kind of come back to what you were saying earlier about mm-hmm. this adoptive love of God, yeah. is that whereas Jamal has to go to these extraordinary lengths to have this meet cute or this extraordinary, <laughs> you know, this encounter <laughs> with Forrester, yeah. God came looking for us. Hmm. Like we didn't have to go to these- We had extra- to break down the walls. Right. Yeah. We didn't have to go climbing into the cosmic observatory or earn our way or do some sort of extraordinary thing to merit an audience with him and hope that he did didn't smite us, you know, kind of like uh, Queen Esther walking into the throne room praying, oh, I yeah. hope Artaxerxes extends the golden scepter and I don't die. God came from eternity through his son, Jesus, looking for us. He came seeking and saving mm. the lost to kind of draw on something we said in last week's sermon from the greatest showman. He came looking for us. He came down of his own initiative. You can read that in the scriptures. And I think that can provide great comfort, especially in the Holy Spirit, as I think really helping that sink into your hearts. But I think you have to believe that, mm. which I think is where the rubber meets the road, if that makes sense. That's easier said than done. I do. I have a pushback question for you. Yes, please do. So in the day-to-day, in the absolute mundane, how is that a truth that like permeates your mind? How do you keep that in mind? Because I find it so easy to slip into like what I described. Yeah. So what is it that like, is there something that allows you to keep that in front of you? Well, I'm going to speak from personal experience here. So this may be different for everyone. But as you know, you know, I'm a pretty depressive person. (laughs) Like my thoughts, we joke around here about Enneagram types. If you've taken the Enneagram, you know what that is. If you don't, (laughs) I'm not going to take the time to explain it. Just you look it up. It's not a, it's not an end all be all thing. It's something helpful to learn more about yourself. Right. But Enneagram, I'm a type six. Type sixes are generally very fear driven, very catastrophic thinking. So I've become a very depressive person and my thoughts spiral pretty quickly. Like when I get started on this could go wrong, this could go wrong, well that could go wrong, then that could go wrong. And my mind is a very... uh, (laughs) 
a messed up place to be. And I really do struggle. Mm-hmm. And when I say struggle, I mean, it feels like a life or death wrestling match with the angel sometimes over, does God care? Like, is he near me? Does he love me? Does he approve of what I'm doing? Yeah. And so for me, what I've had to come back to, to keep this in front of me is I have, for lack of a better term, a kind of a storehouse of the promises from the scriptures that I go to in these moments of doubt. And here's the thing about that, right? Mm-hmm. I don't always believe them at first, right? which I think is okay. What I do is I turn them over again and again in my mind until I say, all right, like take a deep breath, calm down. If I really believe that this promise that I'm saying over and over again in my head is the reality and is the truth of God's word, then my circumstances and the thoughts that assail me, that's not real. What's real is this promise. So like, for instance, one of my favorites is Isaiah 41.10, which says, do not be afraid afraid. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you and I will uphold you with my mighty right hand. I do that one when I'm like, my anxiety is going out of control. I just turn that over and over and over again in my mind. And when I'm afraid, I recite that promise over and over again. And I try through the help of the spirit to say, all right, you need to make that real to me. Mm. Like, I can't do that. You need to make that real to me. And I need you to make known to me that promise is true. God is with me, that he loves me, that I am, in his own words, his beloved child, that if I sin, I have an advocate in Jesus, and that when I need help, I can approach the throne of grace in my time of need, that I can do all that, and that God is with me. And I need you to make that real to me, Holy Spirit. But here's the thing about that is I need to have that promise in my head so I can ask him to do that. Otherwise, I'm just taking vague generalities and saying, well, yeah, God is good. Um, Which, I mean, it's true. Like, you know, like, but we laugh because like, okay, that's not going to help me. Like, that's not helpful to me when I'm in the throes of almost having a panic attack. Mm -hmm. I need something specific. To latch on to. Right. And so that promise kind of becomes an anchor for me. Mm-hmm. My father's talked about that a little bit too, I think in sermons. And we, we did a podcast on that many, many moons ago, probably back in December or sometime around that. But you have this go-to habit phrase right. that you come to that reminds you of these things. But I think that's the other key of it is what I said is like, at the same time I'm doing that, it's weird. I'm doing both things at the same time. I'm saying Isaiah 4110 and I'm asking, all right, Holy Spirit, make that real to me. And I've really found that when it comes down to it, having those promises from God's word is the only thing that helps me in the day-to-day and the mundane. Okay. And then the spirits help to do that. Because you can try all kinds of things on your own, I feel like. Yeah. And they just, I mean, it becomes an exercise in futility and folly. Mm-hmm. And then you end up feeling worse about yourself because you're like, well, I don't, like, I can't do it. You know, yeah. <laughs> like, I can't, I can't get this into my head or I can't wrap my mind around it. And the other thing I come back to before I ramble on too much longer in closing here is there are still plenty of moments where I don't know what to pray. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. Not terribly often, but I think there are moments for each of us where we're really pressed into a situation where we don't know like anything. We don't know what to do. We don't know what to pray. We don't know what to say. We don't know how to help someone. And the promise I come back to in those moments is in Romans 8. I'm blanking on the exact verse, but where Paul says, and if we don't know what to pray, the Spirit intercedes for us with groans too deep for words. So in those moments, I'm reminding myself, okay, like, I don't know what to do, but the Holy Spirit's praying for me. Yeah. And he's praying for me in such deep and intimate ways that words can't capture it. So please make that real to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and even if it doesn't necessarily like make all the fog lift or the sun doesn't suddenly come out from behind the clouds, right? it gives me manna to get me through today, through the next minute or the next hour. And I found that is what gets me through personally. That's good. That's yeah. Good. Hopefully that's helpful to somebody or people, but you know, 
And, you know, you may find that there are more specific promises in the scriptures that pertain more pertinently to you in the life situation you're enduring or going through. But uh, those are the things that help me not see God as a Forrester character, but as Jesus as, you know, I'm gentle and lowly in heart, you know, come to me, like, right. cast your burdens and your cares upon me because I care for you. But that is a battle. It does feel like wrestling with the angel a lot of times. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so anyway, yeah, I think that's that. It's good. That's all I have to say about that. I appreciate it. That's a Forrest Gump reference there. Just another movie reference. You know, <sighs> there you go. Just got to throw in more of those. Another American classic. You know what I'm saying? That's, uh, which is funny, you know, as we, we close this episode, I have not actually seen all of Finding Forrester. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, I wasn't... I just feel like I need to confess. I just need to be honest. I just need to be open about that, you know? But, like, I've seen enough of it now that I get the picture. We're frauds. That's what we're saying. Wow. We're frauds. Listen, or... Yeah? You gonna turn that around somehow? The Lord provides. That's... Not the words in this moment. (laughs) 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 Oh, no. That's... uh, I think that's it. Yeah. Thank you for listening to us. Very much. As you always do. Mm. If you're helped by this content... Leave hey, us five, five, five star review. But what kind? Well, hey, it's the only kind of honest, and it's the only kind of five. <laughs> As we like to say around here at the like Rise of Church podcast. Boy, do I like to say it. <laughs> I specifically do. <laughs> uh, and if you have other questions, email us at podcast at horizonschurch.net. Find us on social media or harass us at the coffee shop or wherever <laughs> you happen to find us. <laughs> Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Mm.